0: Well, the sermon this morning is entitled this, The Excellence of the Knowledge of Christ. The Excellence of the Knowledge of Christ. And you'll find that, of course, in Philippians chapter 3, and where Paul says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Well, Paul or perhaps we should call him in his old title, Saul of Tarsus, knew a lot about a lot. He really did. He was a well-taught man, and he had been schooled, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the principal teachers of the Jewish religion. Well, that was quite a title to have. Can he list further things, doesn't he, there? He says, well, if people are going to have confidence in where well, they started in life, who they are, well, their birthright is, then, sorry, I can trump a lot of you. I can, I can outbid you all, because I've got it all going for me, actually. Just look at who I am. There is me. I'm the stock of Israel, circumcised the eighth day. You see, we got it all right there. The law, didn't miss a trick here. Tribe of Benjamin. Well, that's one of the more illustrious tribes. Hebrew of the Hebrews. I won't find anything lacking in my genealogy. What else concerning the law of Pharisee? Well, they were the top dogs, weren't they there? The Pharisees, the leading religious sect of that day, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. That earned you respect. At least it did for your fruit and branch Pharisee. That earned you respect if you were persecuting the church. And concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. And if you... Measured me against the, the outward things that you could do and where it would seem that you were doing well. Well, I again was blameless. I was beyond the lot of them. I was a street ahead. So he's a man. He knew a lot about a lot. But then he realized that he knew nothing of eternal value. He knew nothing. All his background, all that upbringing, all of those status things that he had that were going for him, actually were nothing, counted as nothing. In fact, he's got stronger language than that to use about it, as we'll see, because of eternity, of finding God's favor, and really knowing God, he was absolutely nowhere. That worse than nowhere. But that he then describes to us how he discovered someone. Ah, not something. He discovered someone. And that someone then became absolutely everything to him. Journey's end. Completion. This is actually what his own false heart, his deceived heart was needing. Actually needing. He didn't need the other things. Those were not helping him at all. But now he's a very contented man. He tells them that in the later chapters in in Philippians. He's a very contented man, very satisfied man. The things are easy for him. He's in prison when he writes this. And he talks about knowing Christ, doesn't he, there, and the, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want the real deal, he's saying. I don't want to miss any of this. I want to be absolutely taken up with who the Lord Jesus Christ is. If it means sufferings, then count me in. I want to be part of everything that it means to be united with him. Because now, job is done, journey's end, search is over. Don't need now to be worrying about uh, all the things I used to worry about. Don't need to be absorbed in the things that I used to. I have conveyed to me a sense of standing and self-esteem. Done with that. Because now I have found the very one whom to know. Well, that is the most excellent, excellent of beings. This is excellence of knowledge that I possess in him. So my first heading is this. A historical person you can know. A historical person you can know. And know in a sense of living with him. Living with that person as a living experience. Well, there are a lot of lot of dead historical figures. You don't need me to tell you that. And you can't have the same relationship with them as you can have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucified and died indeed, but then rose again and has ascended. Is now set at the right hand of God. And that all principalities and powers are being made subject to him. Wonder of wonders, friends today. You and I can have a living relationship with him. Something where there is interaction, where there is something happening. Well, you can't have that with a dead person. Oh, we got got their, their paintings, paintings of them they look like perhaps or what they wanted everybody to think they looked like it's a little generous the artists were towards them some of them at least we've got some statues and a few of those around these days and maybe some of them they be quite happy to get rid of there are there are statues various people people from the past people who made at least in the eyes of the people of that day some difference even if we may want to differ with that now and that assessment well, you can see that, but to what? Even if it is something of a likeness of that person, you're not going to have much of a living relationship with that statue. Or those who left their writings. Oh, yeah, that's that's interesting. And we find that we so often they're men and women of their own day and show the limitations of their own day. And we have to pick and choose carefully through what we read about them. But, yes, we get near maybe to the heartbeat of that person, but they're not dead now, and historians will kind of reevaluate their work and find things in what they did, what they said that ah, oh, you see they'll be influenced by this, or they'll be influenced by that, and we're we're forever kind of trying trying our best here in looking back to understand who these people were and what they were about, but they're not here to tell us themselves you can go to man and chew swords, you'll see some kind of pretty near to it, waxworks there, uh, they know what they're doing. They can create a fair old likeness of people, both living uh, and dead. But again, you would probably be politely escorted out to so Madame Sorts, if you try to hold a conversation with one of those waxworks or expect them to kind of come up with an answer or some advice or uh, offer you an opinion. I think you would find yourself there um, being kindly spoken to. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have somebody who once was dead, now is alive forevermore. and You and I can very much speak with him. And we don't need a picture of him to do that. Uh, we don't need a statue of him uh, to do that. Uh, we, we don't need to uh, kind of imagine him to, to do that. No, he, he is able to be a very warm, caring, alive person. To each and every one of us without us needing to, to draw him, uh, or picture him in some way or try with flights of imagination there to, 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 see him as he, as he might have been. The Bible brings him very much alive to us, but it brings the person alive. It doesn't tell us what he looked like. Doesn't tell us so much about what he, what he dressed like or what his favorite foods were or anything like that. It wants to take us actually to the heart of the person and still to this very day. A heart that person you and I can know. God gave his Holy Spirit not to do weird stuff to us, but to actually bring us fuller confidence in that person, to make the reality of him, a living person, alive to you and to me. He's ascended into glory, but he's not far, far away from us. And though the disciples who were there on the mount near Bethany he was taken up from them and and then the cloud received him as it were and he was gone from their sight but he wasn't gone far even though you might think heaven long way away another dimension sure but it's close to us and he is close to us and he's very very near to us and when we pray to him it's not as though our prayers have to sort of struggle to to get to him that he's so far away Perhaps we should shout to him or well, we should add some sort of uh repeating and repeating it for for him to, to kind of get the idea as though we sort of motioning to somebody who's miles away and jumping up and down to try to gain their attention so he's he's so near he doesn't he doesn't need that not like, uh, you know, you, you see, don't you, those, um, salmon returning to wherever it was that they first, you know, their, their egg was hatched and they kind of went downstream out into the, into the lake or some of them there towards the sea. And then they return. Oh, how painful it is to watch them kind of struggling upstream and negotiating rapids and kind of leaping as it were to get back to where they started from. Our prayers are not like that. They're not having to sort of get through this hazard and, and barge through here for God to hear us. You no, know, you and I can have contact with him. It's not like mail that gets lost. It sadly seems to get, get lost. And I hear people telling me letters that they hope to get. They never got them. And uh, I've sent people letters and they never got them. And not like that. Nothing nothing gets lost. doesn't get lost on route. Because you and I are in a relationship with him, and we've been singing to him, we've been reading his word, we can speak about him over over lunch and some spare places. If any friends want to stop with us, yeah, do do indeed. We think we have food there, I can say that, and plenty of it. Do stop. And we can rely upon that help any place, any anytime. In the psalmist that we read in Psalm 119. He rises in the night. Midnight, he remembers him. And it's not that everything has closed down at that time. Oh, he travelled to, to Warrington, uh, Andrew and I, yesterday. We had to set off a bit early there and, uh, you know, hope for a cup of coffee on the way while well, I speak for myself there. But anyway, there it is. Ah, it's a bit too early. Everything was shut. Well, we did find a place to venture. I've got a happy ending to the story there. But um, the, the places we might have hoped, that ah, was too early. They, they were shut. Heaven is never shut. And the way to this living being, the Lord Jesus does not go offline. He doesn't stop. He doesn't kind of not work on particular days or particular unsociable kind of hours. And he doesn't want to work during, during those. Any place, any time, this living relationship you can have with him. Him, King of kings and Lord of lords, we prayed for king charles the third still getting our heads around that one a bit but there we are king charles the third he's been king he must be about a month now i suppose it is well he hasn't been in touch uh, i'll wait for the call or you know how am i doing he's been in touch with you no? okay well there he is we pray for him we we do indeed wish him well in that work and we heartily entreat god uh that god would bless him but for all the fact and i'm Doubt not he's a caring man. Doubt not. Doubt not that he could. He would actually be in touch with you, with me, would give us a call, send an email. Why well, better still, drop drop round and have a, have a, a cup of coffee with us or dwell with us here at Fellowship Meal. But I have to let you down gently on this. I don't think that call is going to come. I don't think uh, we'll be making a, available there, a place at our table in Charles the third. I don't quite see that happening. So I'm sure he cares for us, and I'm sure if he could, he would, and uh, must maybe feel the burden of his office. But our King of Kings, with all due respect to King Charles III, we move to a higher authority here. Our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords is here to help all the time. And there are no details that are too small to engage his concern. If it concerns you, it concerns me, it concerns him. And he is ready there to relate to us, to be with us in that. I don't think either that we have to do something odd to ourselves. You see, I'm trying not to use the word weird too often. I'm overusing it. We use the word odd. Do something odd or strange to ourselves or get ourselves into some sort of weird, well, I used it, a weird state of consciousness in order to commune with him, or to properly commune with him, to be properly in the spirit with him. Not far from it. You, you and I need to be at our most alert and our most awake. We need to engage our mind, our soul, our affections, our everything. And then we are in a proper state to be more aware of him and to actually receive from his word truth, to have help that he might input into us you no know, we need to be our minds switched on actually ready we're attentive we're listening we are prepared in heart and we are fully in charge of our faculties and then we can know a sense of belonging to him a sense of connection with him so he's a historical person you and i can know and know very very well and very much second heading all rubbish <laughs> Oh, rubbish. Preachers must uh, must love to light on that uh, word that we find there in, again, verse 8, where he says rubbish. That's a very strong word, actually. It's, uh, well, the commentators tell me this, it's sort of like dog's awful. Uh, well, you don't want to dwell on that over much and too long. And the readers of that would have been shocked to hear Paul use such a strong term, something horrible. Something. oof, I'm going to get near that. Uh, you really, really don't. And yet that's the word that he uses to compare with the relationship he has, this excellence of knowledge of Christ Jesus. It is. It's time just to look at that word. This, The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Excellence, surpassing worth beyond value incalculable immeasurable something that is of such quality that everything else compared to it is well he uses a strong term well, it's actually rubbish it's actually something that you look at and think, oh, recoil from that but there's something so much better that he has found in him for all the fact that he knew a lot about a lot prior to his conversion he knew a lot about a lot, but he knew nothing where it counted. And all that he knew, and all that lot about a lot, when it came to how to know God, how to relate to him, he dismisses it entirely As actually, I counted in my estimate of it. And it might have impressed a few of his readers. Whoa, he was circumcised the eighth day, was he, Justin? Oh, he, he really was a Pharisee, was he there? Blameless regarding the law, impressive. And so if they're waiting for Paul to say, oh, that's quite good. Yes, I, I kind of felt, so. Uh, this, this had value to hear him then say, no, I can't do all rubbish compared to what I now have compared to the knowledge I have of Jesus Christ as Lord. All the rest of it there. I want nothing to do with it anymore than I would sort of gather up a dog's offal or kind of go searching that out there. I wouldn't do it. Nobody else would do it. And that's how I look on. Everything else compared to the knowledge of him. That thought to him that surpassed everything and that was at the heart of the excellence, the surpassing worth of this knowledge is that he's forgiven, that he's forgiven. He's been forgiven by God. God, this, this great being that he had at least had some notional knowledge or he had had some kind of intellectual knowledge of and he knew. Yes, it's great. It's holy. And how can you approach him? Well, this is how you approach him. You uh and you're helped if you're Hebrew of the Hebrews and you come from the tribe of Jin Benjamin and you've been circumcised the eighth day. All of that helps, all of that helps. But then you've got to do the right things. You've got to be the right person, ideally, from this background here, if you're not from my particular tribe or from the tribe of Judah, it's harder work for you. But I've got a head start on that. That was great. And I'm doing the right things. I'm doing the right things, doing what, as he understood the law, as he understood the law, doing the right things and doing them with great diligence and doing them with great energy. And concluding from it, I'm accepted. I am accepted. I am regarded by God as righteous as the sort of person that God would fellowship with, that God would say, you belong to me. I have a connection with you. We can converse together. I was that person. And I thought I was the right man doing the right things. But I wasn't. And in fact, it was the opposite. I was doing the wrong things. I hadn't even understood the law that I thought I was an expert in. I hadn't understood... How to be accepted by God, which is the most elementary, the most basic thing to know. How can I be accepted by this great God? How how can a holy God receive a sinful person like me? How can we have connection? How can we have fellowship? And he said, I thought I knew the answer to that. I thought I had that righteousness where God would say, yes, this person I accept. I regard him, her as righteous. I thought I was that man. I realized I wasn't. And it all completely unravelled. He said, I worked out myself here. I worked out what I was doing here. I was very pleased with myself. I was actually very proud of who I was, my standing, my background. Oh, look how many things I'm doing here, and all the right things at that. This is good. I'm in a good place here. and felt, therefore, very pleased with himself. I rather thought other people should say, Oh, you are doing the right things. So you're getting feedback from your the people around you. Oh, you're doing well there. You are doing well. It just fed into some primordial pride in the depth of his being. And he felt that God is therefore pleased with me. Except in this, God was rendered a kind of mute spectator. Had no voice, had no say, but was simply there to applaud was there required almost a, it's a background character in Paul's thinking as he reviewed it? He didn't think it at the time, but he thought it afterwards. That God was reduced to just being applause for what this great man was doing. Man with all this background. Great. What's there not to like about that? Doing all these right things? Wonderful. God would be applauding him. But God was not really allowed to say in this. And Paul had turned him onto mute and was not listening, not listening to the testimonies of the people he was persecuting who were speaking about Jesus Christ to him. he reacted to that, reacted very strongly to it because somewhere his conscience was unmuting God's voice and was making actually clear statements to him that he was wrong, that he was wrong. And now Turned around, the road to Damascus, turned him around, knowing, meeting with the risen Christ, the Lord Jesus, why are you persecuting me? And who are you, Lord? Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And that was then that. He now knows God. And he knows how you come into relationship with him. And it was nothing to do with what he was doing. And had nothing to do with your status and where you begin in life. And you belong to him almost automatically because you were from the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of the Hebrews and circumcised it. But none of that counted. And he needed instead to find forgiveness from that God. To repent. To turn from the, the horror, what he finds now in his own heart. What was I doing? I was relying upon myself. I was proud. I thought, By doing these things, God is happy with me. He was unhappy with me. Indeed, I was in danger of judgment and hell. It was as bad as that. My situation was as serious as that. Oh, I saw then the way. I realized now I can see that it's Jesus Christ. The very one that I was persecuting, and the people who followed him, I was persecuting. And now I see that actually, He is the centerpiece of everything. He's the one of value. He is the pearl that you discover and you sell everything else. It's got no value now compared to him. And Paul says, I'm that man. So all the other stuff that I really thought was getting me into good place with God and was part of my acceptance, I have just said, rubbish. I don't want any of it. It's horrible stuff. It was killing me. It was poisoning me. It would have taken me to hell. And now... I found him. Friends, you know, we may not be able to say with Paul that I am from the tribe of Benjamin, that I was circumcised the eighth day, and I belong to the Pharisees, and I persecute the church. But we can all of us be fools, thinking we're possessing something of great value. But actually, we're holding on to rubbish. We're holding on to something that is actually destroying hope of a relationship with God that is actually diminishing our opportunity of relating to him, that is driving him further from us rather than showing kinds of attitudes, the kind of humility that would maybe catch his attention the more. Or oh, some people say uh, that uh, they're following the science. Well, yes, please do. Find true science, you follow it. Because if you find true science, You'll find true scientists who desire what? To find the truth. To actually discover the truth rather than find their way up in their career, rather than get money from China or whatever else might do it to kind of give you a few more letters after your name and get you sitting on a kind of government panel and recognition by the World Health Organization, whatever it might be. I follow the science when you can, but sometimes I've heard that said so smugly. And in such a superior way, that's dissident voices. And that's how science thrives, actually, it's dissident voices. You you have tests to your, your theory. You have challenges to it. Can our theory meet the challenge here? No, it can't. We better change a theory or that part doesn't work. Let's adjust it there. That's how the scientific method works. And so much of following the science is actually say, we're going to suppress the dissenting voices here. There's only one view to hold. This is it. We're holding it. We're following the science. What do you follow? As if you're kind of intellectually inferior and you're just a little bit sort of lacking in something there. Oh, dear. That can be a big one there. Philosophy. Philosophy. People can think that they've got it. They can think clearly. They can go back to principles and kind of work it all through from there. And they, they can leave you and I feeling pretty dumb. By comparison, I don't understand all of that. And yet, when you look, well, where do you begin this? Straight away, right from the beginning, anything supernatural ruled out. Anything supernatural ruled out. So the Bible, which is deeply supernatural, ruled out. You know, well, that sounds like folly to me. That doesn't sound like clear thinking. That sounds like folly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not removing him, not treating him as though he doesn't exist, as though he has no say, and that this world has nothing to do with him. We say no, the world has everything to do with him. And you're not going to get very far in your thinking if you don't have him at the centre of it. Or that people well, they don't even try in a sense to uh to to put it in any kind of philosophical language, I'll say the word. Philosophical language. Nope, when we go on the streets of Belpa, they actually Lift a word out of what we've got in Philippians 3 verse, say it's a rubbish. Oh, I was preaching about quite rubbish, they say. All oh, rubbish. All oh, rubbish. And they don't want to stop and say, well, why? They just sort of say it and often say it very angrily. I say, why? They have to say it angrily. Uh, Paul isn't saying this angrily. Rubbish. He's saying it here strongly, but he's saying it here that because I found something so much better. And these people are saying rubbish about the Christian faith. They never look as if they got something better to offer. I don't find them on the streets of Elba saying, well, I found something wonderful and you should come. I think if they stood up to speak, they'd just come over as very, very angry and wouldn't have very much to say. Well, it's easy to say something is rubbish. It's more difficult than to say, well, what, what do you think is the excellence of knowledge? What What is the surpassing thing that we should all hear from your lips? They never stop to actually tell us what that is. So don't don't value rubbish, will you, friends? Don't value rubbish. It can come with really long words around it. <laughs> it can come there to shock and all you into submission by just having all kinds of terms and clever sounding stuff. It can come with oratory. Oh quick thinking people, quick with a put down, can make you laugh, it can make you cry. Be on your guard against them, I would. And suppose it is that we just never realized what we were thinking we never realized that we were thinking actually rubbish <laughs> that we were clinging you know let's use paul's description to dog's awful that uh that which you prized was really in the estimate of heaven as it is put here by inspiration into paul he didn't just go off message here but no this is an inspired choice of words you're hanging on to to dog's awful well I wish you well in that friend but it doesn't sound like a very wise policy there. What we can be missing, because we never thought that we could think differently. We never knew that actually what is offered to us in the gospel through Jesus Christ is something life-changing, life-affirming, life-constituting, that this is something that is living, because he's not a dead Christ, but a living Christ. Not a Holy Spirit that is up to strange things, but doing very rational, very clear things which have a very strong impact upon the soul and causes us to sing and causes great joy to arise. And all of that is there. Final heading then, the excellence in knowing Christ. Well, we've already been touching on it here. We've already been touching on it, but here's Matthew Henry, the uh, great Bible commentator of uh, of previous generations and uh, this is what's written in his commentary I think these are actually his words but the ones who followed on after him and completed his commentary and he said and it is the excellency of knowledge there is an abundant and transcendent excellency in the doctrine of christ or the christian religion above all the knowledge of nature and improvements of human wisdom So, you know, you can know about nature and how things work there and the rest of it. But this is just beyond it. And human wisdom can do some good, but this this is beyond it. Why? For he goes on, for it is suited to the case of fallen sinners and furnishes them with all they need and all they desire and hope for with all saving wisdom and saving grace. What it provides. Read that little last bit again. For it is suited to the case of fallen sinners that friends is us and furnishes them gives to them provides for them all they need and all they can desire and hope for with all saving wisdom and saving grace that's that's some excellency that is some surpassing worth there and all of it is is there to enhance life enrich life to make you and I not lesser people, but actually to make us actually function in the first place. To become more fully human. That's that's the work of, of grace, is to make us not less human, not to make us into wooden people and uncaring people, slightly odd people, but to make us fully functioning people, truly human, to discover what actually humanity is meant to be, how it's meant to how it's meant to go, how we're meant to relate to each other and how we're meant to make a difference in the world that God has put us. We look to him, our Lord Jesus Christ. We dismiss any status kind of symbols we have of our own, any uh, breeding, background, uh, any family connections there. Ah, Bit of blue blood is there in you? Well, dismiss it all. That's not going to help. Royal pedigree, that's not going to help. Wherever you began, none of it makes any difference whatsoever here, and you come to Christ who you are, as you are, whatever you start in life, however happy, you, however sad a start in life, whatever you began life doesn't matter. You can come to him, and you will find, as Matthew Henry in the commentary there says, he is suited to fallen sinners, to guilty people, to those ashamed of who they are, what they've done, what they think, the kinds of attitudes they have, meets their need. Because we learn, don't we, we're punishable by God. We answer actually to the highest court one day. We'll be before his judgment throne. How can we stand there? The answer is we can't. We're undone. And if we come there in an unforgiven state, then it's too late. But it's not too late if you're in hearing of this to do something about it, to go to him. To go that you may find that the bloody shed on the cross can deal with more than compensate for all our guilt before God. All that brings his wrath towards us. He can undo all of that. He can pacify the wrath of God, in his own perfection, bringing all his glory to bear upon this cross in all of its horror, weakness and ignominy and shame. The violence that is done to him, well, he's bearing our sin. If we would believe in him at that point, he is bearing it. He is taking that guilt and an offering to us. There, there is that pardon in Christ's blood. Receive it, take it, have it. Come for this, because there your guilty conscience will find its rest, find its peace. You'll be able to shake free of all the things that bring us shame that oh we grieve that we ever thought that we ever said that that could ever move us we have that kind of ambition we can grieve over it and see but at the cross it ended its life there and god says no longer do i have this before me that they said that and that they did that that is now wiped clean they begin afresh And they begin more than where they were. I don't just take away that and leave them just to get on with it. I am there. I am an intercessor for them. I pray for them. I pour out upon them my Holy Spirit. I bring into their lives helpful experiences. Sometimes I teach them hard lessons if they slow at learning and turned away from me. I bring them back to me and I may use some strong discipline to do it, but I'll do it because I love them. And I'm warm towards them. And I'm wanting to kindly educate them and train them and help them to get away from what creates for them their sadnesses and bogs them down in needless worries and causes them there to, to trip over and lose their way and lose their comforts and their shirts. To bring to them good things. This is excellent. This is surpassing worth. You look at the world out there, what does it have? Friends, what, what really does it have that we have him helping us? Or as I say, he makes us more transparent to ourselves and fits us with now a bigger check on our pride. And when that expresses itself and alarm bells ring more rapidly now and more clearly now, more stridently, and we take action, we're wise when that happens, and there's always more that he's wanting to do, more to give, more to give, not taking away from us. He's not sabotaging. like That's Putin sabotaging some of these gas pipelines, or somebody is, and uh, trying to spoil everybody's day there. And then that half the German rail system packed up the other day because somebody helpfully cut through a vital cable and disabled the whole system. Well, God hasn't come to do that. He's not come to, to wreck us and then to kind of disable us there and kind of push us into some strange misshape there or alter us in a in a kind of artificial way. He's come to make us real people and he keeps on providing, keeps on providing. Does the world have that? Does it have a sympathetic friend to turn to? Does it have somebody who is rich in mercy? Does it have somebody so powerful who can really affect change? Can they pray to a God who can nudge non-Christians and suddenly make them very helpful? Or can even nudge nature and make nature very helpful on occasion? Do they have that? Do they pray to him? They wander sadly, in the world, strangers to what they could have, what they could know. Dismissing as rubbish that which is excellent. Excellence of the knowledge of Christ to know Him well. None but His loved ones know that the love of Jesus, what it is. Oh, but friends, when we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we can't be satisfied with just that. We want to know more, and we want to see more of His work in our souls. We want to see more of His work in our communities. And we we want to see more people coming under His gracious and kind influences, joining with Him uh, in His work hardly began to tell you the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. And Paul has plenty to write, doesn't he, in these epistles. Well, that's the beginning of it. And we can delve in there and absolutely find that there's always more to know, more to discover, more sin to uproot within ourselves, more of his grace, more of his love to drink in and to take hold of. And Paul is overwhelmed with it. Anything else, everything else has got no value. Nothing compares to this. Well, may each of us discover that for ourselves. Not academic knowledge, not me just standing up here in this pulpit telling you about something you can not clue about. I hope it's something you do know about, already know something about, already know more about, maybe more than I know about. Well, that is good. But may we, all of us, ensure that we're not relying upon what the Bible declares in the end to be rubbish, false hopes, false thinking, be gone with it, part with it, repent of it, put your trust in Christ, and in Christ alone. Not who you are, not what you are, what you think you are, what I think I am, but in Christ. And you will find then he has so, so much for us. There is Paul counting all the rest of it loss. It was debit, it was not crediting me with anything, but I found him who does. And it's the excellence, the knowledge, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is he your Lord? Come to him soon.